1: Um, If you register a company, you can say whoever, you can put whatever name down you want as the officers of the company. So when people are like, you're a CEO, I'm like, you could be too. (laughs) (laughs) My guest, Catherine
2: Spires, is an LA-based journalist and culinary anthropologist who hosts the food history podcast, Smart Mouth, and also co-owns a podcast network called Table Cakes. She is your go-to listen if you want to nerd out on the origins of onion dip and vent about how grilling and barbecuing are not the same thing. But she didn't set out with the ambition of having her own media empire. She'd envisioned being a food and travel writer, and eventually she ran the food section at LA Weekly, but then pivoted to being an entrepreneur partly out of necessity. You know, because you gotta eat. And if you're Catherine, you gotta eat well. In LA, the best food city. I'm Maya Lau, and this is Other People's Pockets, the show where I ask people about their money so the questions we all have about how much other people make and how they get their finances to work can be a little bit less of a mystery.
1: Hi, Catherine. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited and a little terrified about talking about money. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: um, why? because uh, we were raised in a world uh, where it was a little rude to talk about money. It was rude to ask about it, but also just to offer it up. Sort of even if you don't necessarily have a lot of money like me, it's sort. Of, I sort of get the sense that it's sort of embarrassing when people talk about how they don't have a lot of money as well. Mm. But having said yeah. all that, I really believe in this. Like we should all be more transparent about money. So I'm I'm excited to do this even though I'm still a little scared.
2: <laughs> I love it. Well, that's the kind of a good space to be in, to be a little scared, but also excited. Right, right, right. Um, a lot of podcasts have this like lightning round at the end, but we're gonna do it at the beginning. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Yes. yes. Okay. What do you do?
1: I run a podcast Empire.
2: Um, wait, what's the podcast Empire about? Like is there <laughs> Is there a theme, or is it just you like own a million podcasts? I
1: would say the theme of my podcast, Empire, is interesting and cool stuff because my business partner and I, we kind of envisioned ourselves as sort of like the arts and entertainment section of a newspaper. A little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. In audio form. Exactly.
2: How much money do you make?
1: I make about 50 to 55K a year. And how do you make that money? Is that all through your business? No, it's not all through my business. So at my business, we pay me 1,500 a month, which essentially covers my rent. I live in Los Angeles, and obviously my rent is rent controlled at that amount. But we decided to just pay me a little bit and then I get 2,500 a month from my family, and then occasionally I pick up freelance gigs. but the rate I do that at, I'm not ever making more than 10 grand a year. What's your net worth? Um. Let's see. I have a liquid money market account that has about twenty thousand dollars in it, and then in stocks, in various investments, I have about fifty k in there. Um, I don't touch those, and I live month to month off of what I earn, which earn is a word that we got to talk about too. I think. <laughs> Ooh.
2: Yeah. Have you ever talked publicly about your finances before?
1: Not publicly. Um, My friends and I are getting pretty open about this sort of stuff, but not on a public platform, no. And how do you feel about
2: talking about your money?
1: I feel like it's the correct thing to do to talk about money. I feel humiliated because I don't make a lot, and that's embarrassing to tell people. And then especially because, again, with the word make or earn, uh, most of the money that I do have coming in comes from my family. And that's not something I've had my entire life. But even though it started in my mid-30s, well, maybe because it started in my mid-30s, that's embarrassing.
2: What socioeconomic class were you growing up and where do you consider yourself now?
1: So... My parents, my mom and dad were together for about two seconds and my dad's family was not wealthy and my dad was very much not wealthy. He was homeless sometimes. My mom came from more of a upper middle class background and she maintained that through her life and still has that. Um, and I mostly lived with her. So it's like I had a mostly upper middle class upbringing but also went to my dad's on weekends and was like, well, this is different. So like, I feel like I have insight into some different classes uh, in the class structure in the United States. I would say, so my income level, something terrible. I think it, I don't know if this is true for a single person. It might be below the poverty level for L.A. specifically. But um, middle class is kind of a mindset, I would say. So I do think I'm middle class.
2: I love what you said about like talking about the word earn. Can you tell me more about
1: that? So when I say I earn money, but I know that most of it comes from my family, I'm like, am I earning it? I didn't do anything. And because of my brain and how it works, I am apt to be mean to myself and tell myself that I didn't do something correctly. But if I'm like, I'm not not working. I am still working in a way like would I feel better if my family just put money into table cakes and then i drew from that and like the check said table cakes on it would i be like i've earned this so when it's like we're just talking about who's writing the check it's like who cares
2: i feel like you're the first person i've interviewed for this that has admitted to taking family money because it's
1: humiliating which i which i appreciate
2: (laughs) which i appreciate like the no i do like the reality of it You mentioned that, you know, your family started helping you in your 30s. Like, do you mind telling us, like, how that started? Yeah,
1: uh, it was because I had been working at L.A. Weekly, which got bought by a bunch of Republicans with an agenda, and they fired almost the entire editorial staff. And it was this kind of a big deal in L.A. for a moment, just being like, oh, my God, L.A. Weekly doesn't technically it still exists, but it doesn't really exist anymore. So um, that got a lot of attention. Um, and then in my family my stepdad's mom, uh, she told me that she felt like I had been working hard my entire adult life um, and that it wasn't fair that like I had gotten laid off for no reason for like political whatever reasons. Um, And so she started to give me money. Um, And so in my mind, I was like, oh my god, my grandma like feels so sorry for me. This is so embarrassing. And my mom was like, you know, I actually think she's proud of you for being a career woman and trying to make it on your own and she sees the way that the industry is changing and the way that the economy is and how like wages haven't kept up with cost of living and she's actually proud of you and wanting to help you on this like career journey that you're trying to build. Cuz you know, I don't think that my grandmother would have started giving me money if I weren't attempting to have this sort of professional career. And there's a value judgment in that, obviously. So how did you
2: come into starting a media company? I'm just so curious, how did you come into
1: this business? Yeah, so when I was working at LA Weekly, that was definitely the best job I've ever had in terms of um, like resume building and also connections. If you say you're an editor at LA Weekly, you can get anything you want, um, interview access, that sort of thing. Uh, but it was also my lowest paid job since my 20s. Yeah. And there was also a lot about it that made me crazy. So before how much should it pay? Uh, I f- believe I was making 35k. It was just hard. It was so low paid that I had to get other gigs. So I felt like I wasn't doing my best work at like this mm. highest profile job I've ever had blah, 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 like a lot of a lot of angst at that job. So while I was there, I was thinking about how little money I was making, um, and Smart Mouth, my podcast, was actually doing okay, and I was like, well, what if I attempted to do the podcast full-time? And one of my friends, Drew Mackey, who I had met when we were both working at KCET, which is the PBS affiliate in Los Angeles, he had a podcast as well. that He was also really enjoying doing um, – it. it's about television, so – I was like, well, our podcasts don't have overlapping topics, but what if we joined forces? Maybe we could make more money together. Mm -hmm. And I approached him about it. He did not have a full-time job either at the time. And we had sort of been talking about starting this company. And then I got laid off and it's like, all right, let's do this. Yeah, got to do it. (laughs) And honestly, throughout my mind, the entire time was like, God, I get paid so little at these office jobs. Is it really going to change my life that drastically? to break out on my own. And I had been a freelancer in the past as well, although in more of the traditional model of having like regular clients that you're writing for and stuff like that. But I think having been (laughs) so poorly paid for my whole career, it actually put me in this position of feeling more confident about starting my own thing because I was like, I am pretty broke either way, so. (laughs) Yeah, totally, like you have less to lose and it's like, why not? Yep, exactly. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC.
0: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics.
2: So now you have this podcast network and there's a lot of podcasts that are part of what you publish. And I mean, can you talk more about like now what what do you consider your job? In addition to being a podcast host, like what do you do?
1: Yeah, so I I am the CEO of my company, which actually is kind of funny because, you know, um, if you register a company, you can say whoever, you can put whatever name down you want as the officers of the company. So when people are like, you're a CEO, I'm like, you could be too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so it's just like a lot of the, honestly, the paperwork and the bookkeeping and like what everyone, well, what a lot of people think is the boring part of running a business that definitely takes up a lot of my time, Um, you know, pursuing advertising and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, of course, you know, when we are actively working with other podcasters, being a producer on some level of their show, whether it's more of a like hands off kind of role or more like directly involved. And I go back and forth and you need to stop going back and forth and just choosing between am I going to try and build up my products within Table Cakes? Like I have smart mouth the podcast and the newsletter. And then I've started a restaurant review website called How to Eat LA. And it's like, okay, should I pour everything into these things that I'm the face of in the hopes mm-hmm. of making a bunch of money and then doing what I think might be my real dream, which is producing with other people on their products? Or should mm-hmm. I start doing that immediately? And bo- mm-hmm. and that I want to do that, but it is really hard to produce other people's content. I'm sure the people who are also silently on this call are, like, nodding their heads, like...
2: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) my God. It's so annoying. Yeah.
1: No. um. (laughs) And then also there's the part um, where, as a journalist, and I've always sort of considered myself, like, the youngest of the old-school journalists um, because things changed so much, like, while I was in college and directly after. But... As an old school journalist, um, we were explicitly taught not to know anything about the business side of the operation or Mm -hmm. the marketing, anything Mm -hmm. aside from just the content, like the editorial, you got to know your beat and you got to know how to write about it. And that's truly all you are supposed to know as a journalist.
2: Yeah. And it was total separation of church and state. People would even use that phrase and like, it's just not good to know or care about which ads are facing your article Mm -hmm. or whatever, like you just have to pursue the truth. And then, of course it's like no any journalist working now has to be really smart about money and business and their brand and like if you don't
1: like, yeah yeah you're gonna get left behind it's just I I understand and I support the reasoning behind the separation of church and state in journalism where it came from it just as with so many things in journalism did not keep up with the times and so yeah. I am woefully underprepared for dealing with the business side of everything. And turns out, so is my business partner, because he too is an old school journalist. So that we've definitely been like struggling with because we were specifically kept away from all of that. So we're really figuring What's it out. What's
2: that phrase? There's like a phrase that like, there's nothing more dangerous than a journalist with a calculator. Oh my like, God, I've never heard that, but yes. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, in terms of the business, it's like, That's not necessarily at all what we're taught, unless you're a business journalist, but even then, that doesn't mean you know how to run a business. No, yeah,
1: not at all. Yeah, We were accidentally done a disservice. I don't think it was meant to be a disservice at the time when we were coming up, but yeah, it really left us unprepared for a lot of things.
2: When you're a newspaper journalist, you're like, well, I make money very indirectly off of ads, right? Yeah. But when you're a podcaster, it's like you have a say in which advertisers you're going to have on. And I always feel like, oh, God, what if there's going to be a scandal later with some company that I like, I voiced an ad for them. I'm just curious how you think about that. And also, like, what kind of money do your podcasts make,
1: if you can say, like, how do you get ads that that pay well? So... Funnily enough, every ad I've run, they've approached me, and it's always been because someone who works at this company listens to Smart Mouth and was like, that'll be a good place to advertise. So, which, you know, talking about lack of business knowledge, I'm like, that seems fine. (laughs) It's as good a way of any as doing it. Sure, yeah. My... Business Partner, his podcast is called Gayest Episode Ever, and it's about episodes of classic television that had uh, queer themes on them. Um, And so they sort of discuss it through a contemporary lens. It's a very interesting show. And I would say that his ads tend to pay a little more. Um, And I think it's because it's that little, little bit of a difference of like, oh, this is our audience versus like, I like this show not complaining about the rates that I have gotten, because anytime I do get an ad on Smart Mouth, I'm like, hooray. (laughs) This is so cool. And because of that, I haven't had to deal with any ethical issues because it's been just food companies. Um, No one has approached me and asked to advertise their offensive product on my show. So I haven't had to deal with that yet. Yeah.
2: What does a podcast ad pay? And like, how do you know if it's if they're like, we're going to pay you X, like, how do you know if that's fair or not?
1: In my experience, not just on my show, but on um, all our shows network wide, people will come to us and they will say, hey, we want you to run three ads or whatever, and we're going to pay you X amount. And it, it varies. And so far, mm-hmm. it's, like I said, nothing's been like offensively low. And we've been like, OK. I remember when I was starting out as a podcaster. um, there are these agencies that match advertisers in podcasts. And I remember meeting with a representative of one of these agencies and being told that they don't work with podcasts that get less than 50,000 views per episode. And I was Mm -hmm. like, huh, okay. Because that is a lot of views or listens rather. Uh, Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And does that mean that they've listened to the whole thing or? (laughs) I don't know. They never said. They were just like, oh, if you've got fewer than 50K listens, like, forget it. We're not interested. And I was like, that's so many. And I feel like, are we pretending like every podcast is my favorite murder? Because I don't think that's actually reasonable to expect. A podcast can be extremely popular and get fewer than 50K listens per episode. So... I was like, okay, never mind. I guess I'll do it on my own. And then five years later, a friend of mine who's also a podcaster told me they had met with the same agency and was told that they don't work with companies that get fewer than 10K listens per episode. And I was like, ah, Hmm. so the agencies have gotten a little more realistic (laughs) about what they're working for. Podcasting, for me, it seems like the bulk of the money is in the people who run podcaster conferences. And obviously, they have slowed down a lot during the pandemic. But honestly, leading up to the pandemic, like all through 2019, I was like, oh, my God, there are so many conferences. There are millions and millions of mm-hmm. podcaster get togethers and meetups in these conferences. And they charge people to attend them a good amount of money. And I was like, huh, I think that's where all the money is. <laughs> like, yeah, you've got Joe Rogan, like making money off of just talking into the microphone. But in terms of where most of the money is being made, I think it's this like tertiary stuff.
2: Yeah. Does that make you want to just host some podcast
1: conferences? I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's definitely tempting. It seems so easy. You run out of space, you offer, you can get like cookies and water sponsored. Like, it does seem like a really easy thing. It also seems really mean. And like, it really is taking advantage of less savvy people who are just trying to break in because it is a weird thing where there is a lower barrier to entry in podcasting than there is in other forms of Mm -hmm. media. Mm -hmm. So, a lot of people are trying to get into it. I just hope that not everyone thinks they're going to be a jillionaire off of it which happens just not very often
2: wait going back to the podcast ad what like what 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 would be an amount if someone's like hey we want to advertise with you here's x like what would be like okay that's good What I, I literally don't even yeah know.
1: Like, <laughs> I think it's been somewhere in the like 5k to 15k range for every ad run that we've done Mm -hmm. and they're not long ad runs it's usually a month or two so it's been a really informal conversation every time which I mean I guess is good for me because if someone was coming at me with numbers and stuff, I'd be like I don't know what you're talking about sorry (laughs) (laughs)
2: Do you feel like anyone ever taught you about money?
1: Yeah, I mean, my mom is a middle child and she's a very classic middle child. So it's all about being capable and handling your shit. And she definitely passed that on Mm. to me. So I knew how to balance a checkbook very early on. Had my own bank account, which didn't necessarily have a lot of money in it. Although in middle school, I got cast on Bill Nye the Science Guy and, oh. yeah, <laughs> and started making really fun money I'm trying to describe I don't I don't actually remember how it was it wasn't anything where like I was a child actor buying a house or anything like that but it financed a few international trips like academic programs I went to England using that money
2: Wow wait so how long were you on Bill Nye two or three years I think
1: so that was That's so cool that was good in terms of having more opportunities than I would have without having made that money. And because my mom is so practical, it was like, okay, this is your money. How are you going to spend it? How are you going to save it? That sort of stuff. And Mm. I still get residual checks every year for about 27 cents. so (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll have to get your (laughs) autograph Of course, of course.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I have this question about food that I've always wanted to talk about with somebody like Uh you who thinks smartly about food. I think it's so interesting that there's always this new market for food content, like new cookbooks Mm, and mm -hmm. like our publishers ever like, you know, we don't need another cookbook this year or whatever. And I think about like water. Like, do you know what Liquid Death is?
1: Oh, that company.
2: Well, yeah. So like for people who don't know, Liquid Death is this water that it comes in a can, it has a skull on it, and it looks like beer or something kind of hardcore. But it's just water. There's, like, still water and sparkling water. It's actually really good. But I can't even imagine being in the pitch meeting for that. Like, okay, so I have this new product. It's going to disrupt the industry. It's water. (laughs) How are we able to just reinvent this thing and there's a market for it?
1: Actually, a few months ago... My boyfriend told me about liquid death. He's like, it's the best water. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And like he gets it uh, at 7-Eleven, which makes sense because it kind of looks – it's sort of in the like monster energy vein, which it's kind of like the like, look at this badass liquid I'm drinking. Yeah, Um, Yeah. But now they sell it at Lassen's, which is this very soft hippie grocery store. And I'm like, why Mm -hmm. would Lassen's want this like punk rock (laughs) <laughs> like not even punk rock, more like heavy metal branded water, and it's like, well, because these dudes got a ton of venture capital and they can put it wherever they want with that kind of money.
2: But it's so like weird to be like that the venture capitalist who's like, you know, what we should get into his water. I don't know. I just find it so well,
1: but see, so funny. It is funny, and things like Liquid Death are why venture capitalists get to consider themselves smart. Cause they get to right. say, like, oh my God, I was such a visionary to know that this canned water I was gonna blow up. Water, but like right. <laughs> how many things have they backed that totally flopped? Yeah. And then you just don't talk yeah. about those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just because right. of where we are at a culture right now, like every everybody wants to say they're in the tech space. So if you right. say, Well, I have this like meal prep and people sign up for the kind of meals they want online, look, it's a tech company and everyone's like, Yay, a tech company. <laughs> So that's something that we're dealing with in terms of food and economics right now. Um, The one that I go back to because it's just so glaringly obvious once you start to look into it is how much the military dictates how we eat. Um, Mm. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I know I sound like a real tinfoil hat type of person when I talk about this. But it's true that the government pays for food companies to come up with Items that will last in ration packets during wars mm. and then those foods are invented and then a war ends and it's like, well, we still want to make money off of this. Like our government contract it ended. We got to sell it to consumers. So that's been a big history. A lot of foods that came about... Those government contracts
2: were back during World War II, or like are you saying those contracts are still being renewed today?
1: And They're probably still being renewed, but a lot of things mm-hmm. in the World War I, World War II era were invented and we still eat them to this day. Basically, like optimal freezing techniques. Um, so, like the TV dinner is sort of an industrial, <laughs> military industrial right. invention. Um, fortified foods, cheese powder, fr- uh, dehydrated coffee, just like a lot of stuff that we uses consumer products now we're not invented as such that's so interesting yeah i think
2: so <laughs> um yeah and also we don't always think about where we get all of our staples like our rice and you know grain and how all of that is so political and i have done some research into like american companies that work abroad and really come to control the grain markets in like developing countries mm-hmm. and
1: have a huge amount of political power in those countries. Yes. I mean, this is a truth that everyone should like remember is that famines are never caused by nature. They're manmade. Yeah. Um, yeah and a lot yeah. of it has to do with big corporations owning all the grain in other countries and storing them right. and being evil about the fact that they own all the stores of grain in a country.
2: How do you eat well in L.A.? Not that you have to spend a lot of money in L.A., but you also totally could, Yeah, you know, just because L.A. is such an amazing food city. And how do you, like, personally manage that with your budget?
1: So... My personal interest at this point is the sort of lower cost places, the places that like aren't in um, high rent areas and don't have the type of budget that allows for like a publicist. I really am into what they call the mom and pop restaurants. So that certainly mm-hmm. cuts down on costs um, as well. I also find, you know, really expensive restaurants, the menus tend to all be very, very similar because mm-hmm. when you're charging those prices, you cannot disappoint anybody. So it yeah. ends up being like they stick to the safe dishes that they know are crowd pleasers. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can find a lot more innovative cooking in the less expensive places as well. I think people assume like a chef driven restaurant has really interesting stuff, but it's like, no, they have a roast chicken and they have short rib and they have a, a pasta. Go somewhere where there's less eyeballs on the chef and you might actually find something more innovative and interesting. Do you
2: have any kind of home recipes for finances?
1: This is something I I struggle with because I know that, like, the right answer is to, like, only spend money on basics and live frugally um, and... I don't think that's the only right answer.
2: I don't think it way, is either, but-,
1: but I think so many people think it is and I I, ha- I have this attitude where I'm like, but you got to live now. And in some ways, it's a fun attitude of like, yeah, like enjoy yourself. But also my dad died really unexpectedly. So I also have this very clear sense in my head of like, you could die tomorrow. You could die in five minutes. Like, so I kind of like, I don't know. I always go back and forth between being responsible and being like a complete nihilist about money.
2: But that also could be your home recipe, is that yeah. you yeah. believe in like living now. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but also within reason. Like, I don't carry credit card debt. That's too stressful for me. It's kind of like the whole argument about, like, if you give an unhoused person money, they're just going to buy drugs with it sort of writ large. It's like, yeah. And why not? Like, what what, <laughs> what? do you want? Like, And I feel like even if you are, you know, housed and more comfortable, it's like, so are you supposed to stay at home every night? Like, no. Right. Also no. So... Got to live. Yeah, a I,
2: I really hate the advice of like, you should just, you know, especially in your 20s, you should, you know, live at home and sock that money away yeah. and just invest all of it and then like retire by the time you're 35 and just, you know, stick to a plan and don't go out and eat so much and don't go travel. Like, I feel like that's totally fine if that works for you. That I also feel like is a personality type. I was just going to say, a, yeah. Taste a taste type. <laughs> yep. Yep. I definitely am one of those people where it's like, I totally have enough. I mean, I have a very, you know, comfortable life and I'm very grateful for it. And at the same time. I want more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I don't know. How do you feel about like the concept of enough?
1: I I don't know. I it kind of depends on like what I'm facing on a day to day basis. The thing that's weighing on my mind a lot recently is the fact that my car is 20 years old and it's a Toyota Corolla. So it could maybe it could last for another 30 years. I don't think anyone's ever tried. But I think about what if I do need a new car? that would be Mm -hmm. a huge burden for me right now. Mm -hmm. Even, you know, even if I got a loan with a good rate, that's like, I don't know if I can afford that. So, I mean, it seems so pathetic I'm sure to like a lot of people who are more financially settled, but I would love to even just get to a point where like the thought of buying a car doesn't put me in a tailspin. Yeah. 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 I should say that I, I am aware of how lucky I am that I actually enjoy my work. Like I don't think a lot of Americans can say that. So I'm very lucky to have that. But um everything that I might have any amount of talent in is a crapshoot in terms of making money. You know, like I have like my limited little skill set to work with and within that, um, there are no guarantees. So the idea of being like, All right, this is it, I'm buckling down and making money, I can't even Fathom like a surefire way of doing that.
2: Mm-hmm. Wait, can I just say something about that? Because you said like everything I'm good at is a crapshoot, and yeah, you know, I totally used to think that, especially about journalism. Okay. Like, there's so many people who can write, and I don't even write that well. <laughs> and compared to them, it's not like oh my god, we got to have my allow right. There's like <laughs> no one's ever said that, but. The skill of synthesizing information is a skill. Yes, absolutely. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. This has been such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah,
1: you too. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to
2: Other People's Pockets. This is a new show, and if you like it so far, it would really help us out if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Other People's Pockets is written and hosted by me, Maya Lau. It's produced by me along with Joy Sanford and Dan Gallucci. Production help from Angela Vang. Our mix engineer is Dan Gallucci. Our executive producers are me along with Jane Marie and Dan Gallucci. A special thanks to mom-and-pop restaurants in L.A., Other People's Pockets is a co-production of Pushkin Industries and Little Everywhere. If you love this show, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus, offering bonus content and ad-free listening across our network for $4.99 a month. Look for the Pushkin Plus channel on Apple Podcasts or at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. You can sign up for Pushkin newsletters at pushkin.fm. You can find Katherine Spires on Instagram at Katherine underscore Spires and on Twitter at Katherine Spires. Find me on Twitter at Maya Lau or on Instagram and TikTok at It's Maya Money. And we would love to hear your voices. We wanna know this week, what questions are you asking yourself about money right now? Like what is just not seeming to make sense about money that you're trying to figure out? leave us a voicemail at 323-540-4255. That's 323-540-4255. Or record a voice memo on your phone and email it to us at otherpeoplespockets at gmail.com.